presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is our fifth study in Paul's letter to the Galatians that I've entitled, A Call to Freedom. Today we're doing somewhat of a digression. We're going to be talking about something called imputation. The doctrine of imputation is extremely important, and it goes hand in hand with the whole doctrine of justification. Now, Paul is not finished defending justification by faith in the letter. In fact, he's essentially mostly just introduced it. He's going to give some illustrations of it and do a lot of explanation. But I thought this would be a good time for us to sort of uh, just step back for a moment and and look at something that we don't hear preached very often, and that is the uh, the doctrine of imputation. Imputation, by definition, is the attributing of something to a person. It's the the setting or the charging of something to someone's account, and we'll explain that uh, to a greater extent uh, here in in just a few moments. I'd like to, for us to begin today in, in, uh, in the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Remember, uh, Galatians was the first letter that, uh, that Paul wrote, as far as we know. Uh, Romans was written uh, several years later. Uh, it's a fuller explanation of a number of things. And so, therefore, we can, uh, while we're, stu- we're going to continue to study the book of Galatians, uh, I think we can gain a lot as we look at uh, some of the little gaps that are filled in uh, for us by uh, looking at the, at the his letter to the Romans. So let me just preface uh, Romans chapter 5 by saying this, that <clears throat> having been declared righteous, that is, having been put into right standing with God through faith in Christ, and that's what justification is. Justification is not being made righteous. That's sanctification. Justification is being declared righteous. That is, that God has declared us righteous through faith in Christ. On that basis, our former estrangement from God has ended, and we as believers in Christ have been now reconciled to God. And as a result, there are a number of benefits that accrue to us uh, through that uh, reconciliation that Christ has done. So, let me uh, let me read uh, the first oh, 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. And uh, we'll make a few brief comments. This is just to sort of set the stage for things. So, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And notice there are a number of benefits that the Apostle talks about here that's a a result of our reconciliation to the Lord. And uh, 
uh, notice he, he first says we have peace with God. Uh, in fact, if you compare that with verse 10, he says there was a time when we were enemies of God. Um, we don't like to think of ourselves as enemies, but uh, we're, we're either his children or his enemies. And through uh, uh, the finished work of Christ, we now have peace with God. Notice, we don't make peace with God. God makes peace with us, and He makes peace with us through His cross. Secondly, He says we also have access to God. Remember in uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 said, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have access right into the throne room of, uh, of, uh, of God Almighty, who is not only our God, but is also our Father. Verse 5 says that we have, we have freedom from guilt. Um, you know, there's some people who just uh, really struggle with guilt. And the great news, one of the great pieces of news from the Gospel is that our, our guilt is taken away through faith in Christ. Uh, in, not only in, uh, in verse 5 does he talk about guilt, but we, but, and we also see that we are the object of God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts, it says. And in fact, it, that's emphasized in verse 8, where it says God shows His love for us uh, in, in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Verse 9 says, uh, shows us another benefit that we have, and that is we are safe from God's wrath. We don't have to worry uh, that uh, one day the, the judgment of God is going to fall on us because that has been taken away through faith in Christ. There's a wonderful old hymn uh, written by Augustus Toplady. I, I suppose his, his most famous hymn is, is Rock of Ages. But there's one that he wrote uh, entitled Faith Reviving, and so I will spare you uh, singing it. But uh, let me just read you uh, two or three or four maybe of the stanzas from uh, Faith Reviving that, uh, that sort of touches on this, uh, this, this whole issue of being safe from the wrath of God. We do not, fe- we do not have to fear that when we die, we're going to, uh, that God's going to be up there sitting on His throne. He's going to flip a coin and say, well, you either you, you're out or you're in. You know, that's, that's already been determined by the, by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what uh, Top Lady wrote in his hymn, Faith Reviving. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Notice what he's saying, the hymn writer's saying here. He's saying, look, if, if Christ has paid for my sins, then I don't have to pay for them. I don't have to worry about that. He goes on to write, Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing pay whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Notice what, again what he's saying here. He's saying, if Christ has already paid for my sin, for God to demand that I pay for it as well, that would be a double payment. That would be like saying, Christ has, has accomplished nothing. And the Father will never say that about the Son. So we are safe from God's wrath. That's one of the great benefits of, uh, of justification, of having been declared righteous by God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. Notice also we are saved eternally. It says in verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Saved eternally. Once more, I turn to... Augustus Toplady in his uh, in another of his great hymns entitled Full Assurance 
and it's, he he writes this: the word, the work. I'm sorry, the work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below nor above, can make him his purpose forego, or sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. That reminds me of uh, the passage from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16, where uh, God speaks through Isaiah and says, can a, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And that's what this, uh, that's what this hymn is about that Top Lady wrote. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I don't know about you, but, uh, of course I'm, I'm getting sort of old now and, uh, but I remember as a, as a kid, one of the things that my mother used to caution me about, she said, don't, don't get a tattoo. Uh, and there was a specific reason for getting a tattoo. And it was because why? That's right, because you you can never get rid of it. Now we know today that they laser them off and all that, but that's not an option as far as God is concerned. Our names are engraved in His hand, and eternity will never erase any of those uh, names. We are saved eternally. And then finally, in this passage in Romans 5, he gives us several reasons to rejoice. And these days, uh, these perilous days that we're living now, uh, with pandemic and uh, just all sorts of social unrest going on uh, in this country and around the world as well, uh, we need some reasons to rejoice. Well, Paul tells us uh, at least three here that we ought to be rejoicing. One is that we certainly have the confident expectation uh, of one day being in God's presence. Uh, he says in verse 2, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. <clears throat> okay, so we can come boldly to the throne of grace. But then that second part of that verse says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. One day we will be in His glorious presence. That's a expectation and a confident expectation that we have. Secondly, a second reason to rejoice is because our suffering really has divine purpose. Remember what he said? He said in verse 3 and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's the hang in there. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And he reminds us at that point about the Holy Spirit being poured into our hearts. So we, we, we rejoice over our confident expectation that one day when, when our time is up on this earth, that we will be in His presence. But and he also, uh, we rejoice in the fact that our suffering really has purpose. We don't always understand what it is. But it, uh, it has purpose in that it, our character develops, we learn to endure, and we learn to appreciate more and more the love of God that He has shown us. And then finally, in verse 11, he says we rejoice in God Himself. That is, knowing and being known by Him. So the question that arises out of all of this, and I took a little longer than I probably should have in just going through this, but the question that arises in reading this is that how can the death of one man produce so many benefits for so many people? How is it that, that one person's death can produce all of these benefits for so many people all around the world, all who would put their trust in Christ? And the answer to that question is found in the doctrine of imputation. Uh, again, imputation is the, the attributing of something to a person. It's the setting or charging of something to someone's account. If, uh, if you've got a child or a grandchild that's off at school somewhere and they have, uh, they have a checking account 
and they have depleted their checking account. Uh, Oh, and the prom is coming up, and oh, they they can't afford to buy a dress. They can't do any of these things. You know, you've got a couple of options. You can help them out, or you can let them suffer the consequences. And and most of the most of us want to help them out and let them suffer the consequences at another time. But the the point is, is that one of the things that we can do is that we can contact our bank. And we can have uh, we can have funds transferred from our account to their account. That's that's imputation. That's the charging of something to someone else's account. Now, when the Bible talks about imputation, and and there are several terms that are used in the Bible that. Uh, in addition to the word impute, and that is to count or to reckon or to credit or to account. There's no difference in the usage of the term regardless of who does the imputing or what is imputed. Uh, If it's God who does the imputing, in Psalm 32, too, it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Well, that brings up a question, and that is, how can a just and holy God not count iniquity against a sinner and still remain holy? Well, again, the answer to that is found in the doctrine of imputation. Or in the case of a human being, uh, uh, in Philemon uh, Paul writes about the runaway slave Onesimus, and he tells Philemon, he says, If he, Onesimus, has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Impute it to me. Count it against my account. Uh, So it doesn't matter who does the imputing, whether it's God or some human being, and it doesn't matter what it is that's imputed. It could be a good deed or it could be an evil deed. For example, in Psalm 106, uh, it says uh, it's uh, the the psalmist is talking about the things that uh, that went on during the time in the wilderness, and uh, and and he's recounting the golden calf incident, and he says they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. And then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness. What Phinehas did was, and we don't need to go into all of that right now, I'm just making the point that uh, in this case it was a good deed that was imputed to Phinehas. It was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. But evil deeds also uh, are imputed, and they, uh, unlike the good deeds, which uh, a, a reward is imputed, in this, in the case of the evil deeds, punishment is, incu- uh, is imputed. And um, in Leviticus 17, it says, If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. In other words, there was a, there was a divinely approved place for making sacrifice. And if you made a sacrifice, decided like uh, Cain of old had done, that you just make your sacrifice of whatever you wanted to do, you'd do it. And wherever you wanted to do, you would do it. It says, in that case, then blood guilt would be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from his people. Now notice in, in talking about this, now don't, don't, don't give up yet. This is all going to come into focus here in just a minute. It's important to realize this, that imputation does not change the character of a person. It only changes the standing of the person. That's, that's the reason it's linked with justification. If it changed the character of the person, it would be linked with sanctification. But it's linked with justification. That is... Uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work, God the Father declares the believing sinner righteous. There is something that is imputed. In fact, there are a couple of things that are imputed. 
it does not change our character. It ultimately will change our character as we are sanctified by the Lord. But it does the focus is not on changing our character. The focus is on changing our legal standing before God. That we are no longer enemies of God. That we are now His children. So something is imputed. Something is imputed to the believer and something of the believers is imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there are three major uses of imputation in the Bible. Uh, the first one, of course, is of, of Adam's sin to all of his posterity. Uh, in Romans 5, we haven't got it to it yet, but the, that 12th verse says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that's Adam, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin. Now we're going to talk about that, what that means here in just a few minutes. But there's a solidarity that we have with, with Adam. And the sin of Adam has been imputed to all people everywhere. That's the reason the Bible says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the second major use of the term imputation in the Bible or the doctrine of imputation has to do with the sins of God's elect, uh, those sins being uh, imputed to Christ. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All we, we believers, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on the Messiah the iniquity of us all. The Lord has, and as we'll see, the Lord has imputed uh, something uh, to the to the Messiah, and that something that He has imputed is uh, is our sin. Jesus didn't die for His sin. He didn't have any sin. He died for the sins of all of those who trust in Him. And then the third major use of the term uh, or the doctrine of imputation in the Bible is uh, the imputing of Christ's righteousness to the true believer. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one says, "He God made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him." The, God took all of the perfections of Jesus and put that to our account uh, as we trust in Him. And He took all of our sin and put that on the account of Jesus and He died for that. Um, now I want us to talk just for a few minutes about the... Uh, about first of all, about the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his posterity. You'll notice that uh, that on the second page of your notes, you've got those two circles, and one circle is uh, is marked in Adam, and the other circle is marked in Christ. Everybody in this world is in one of uh, is in one of these families, as it were. You are either in Adam, and we are all born in Adam. Or you are in Christ through faith in Christ. And uh, Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Uh, Adam... Adam and Christ are the heads, are the head of a uh, of a of a of a family, the, the of a, of a humanity. The, Adam is the head of all humanity. Christ is the head of a brand new humanity, uh, and we'll we'll sort of fill that out in a minute. Let's let's talk about the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his uh, posterity. Uh, it's certainly inferred in the uh, in the uh, in the book of Genesis that Adam's sin has been imputed to everybody everywhere, and that's stated specifically as we'll see in uh, in Romans chapter five here in just a minute. But notice, remember from Genesis chapter two, it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And we know what happened. We know that uh, the, our primeval parents did eat of that forbidden fruit. Now, now again, notice, this was the only law that there was at the time that was laid down for man, is that you don't eat of this fruit. If you do, you're going to die. Now, we know that they died spiritually because God... Uh, came in the cool of that evening. Uh, they had covered themselves with, uh, with vegetation to hide from each other and ultimately to hide from God uh, the, the nakedness that they were experiencing. Not only physical nakedness, but more so their spiritual nakedness because they had broken God's law. But uh, so there was a, a sense, and clearly they had died spiritually, but they had they also had become mortal and corruptible, and from that point on, they would begin to age and suffer the things that everybody does suffer as they get older, and uh, eventually they would die. Now. Now, the point is, is when you read after reading that, when you get to Genesis chapter 5, what you, what you read is, is, and I'll just give you a little sample of it, in the days, that Adam, uh, the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Well, God said he was going to, and he did. Seth, Seth's days were 912 years and he died. And Enos, Enosh were 905 years and he died. Now, so you've got this whole list of people who died. Now the question is, why did they die? Why, they had, there was only one law that had been given, and that law was don't eat of the fruit of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, Adam and Eve had been uh, taken out of the garden, uh, the gates were secure. There was no getting back in there. Well, at this point, there are no laws that uh, that we understand why Adam and Eve died because God said they were going to because of their sin. But why is it that all these other people are dying? Why, why are they dying? They, they didn't eat of the fruit of, uh, of the garden. Uh, so why is it that they were uh, that they were dying? Well, Paul helps us to understand that in Rome, again in Romans chapter 5 beginning at verse 12 because here he talks about the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his posterity uh, Adam's sin brought death and uh, to not only to him but it brought universal death uh, we were we've all sinned in Adam now notice notice the way Paul expresses it he says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man is Adam, and death through sin, death came and death was non-existent in the world at that point until Adam did this, and then death came through sin, and then it says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now what does he mean by that, all sin? He's saying that all sinned in Adam. In other words, we have a a solidarity with uh, with with the head of our humanity. Uh, we were in Adam when he did what he did. He was our representative. He was created and chosen by God uh, to be the head of this humanity. Now, between Adam and Moses, uh, there were. There were people, including infants, who died even though there was no law for them to transgress. Moses hadn't come along yet. No law had been given. The only prohibition that had ever been given up until the time of Moses was just don't eat of the fruit of the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So why are all these people dying? They were dying because Adam's sin had been imputed to them. Notice in verse 13, he explains that. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. That is, before the time of Moses, who came hundreds of years later. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So, yet death reigned from the time of Adam until the time of Moses, even
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now again, what he's saying here is that between the time of Adam and the time of Moses, when the law would be given, there were people, including infants, who were dying even though there was no law that for them to transgress. And the point that he's making here is that the reason they were dying was not for their own sin, but because we share in Adam's guilt because God counted us as being in Adam. His sin is imputed to us all. You say, well, whoa, whoa, Bradshaw. That does not seem fair at all to me. I don't even like the way that sounds. Well, let me say this. And that is, this is the bad news that our, that, that Adam's sin is imputed to us. It is counted to us. It is just as if we partook of that fruit ourselves. That's the bad news. But that's the bad news that makes the good news great news. Because there is an imputation now that Paul talks about where I like to call it the divine double imputation. Uh, look at uh, verse 15. From verse 15 down through the end of the chapter, chapter 5, Paul is going to talk about the differences and the similarities of what Adam and what Christ did. Again, you've got two humanities that are being representative. Uh, two humanities. Every, every human being is in either one or the other. All of us is born into one. That is, we are born into the humanity of Adam. Those who are trusting in Christ have been born into the other humanity, and that's the humanity that, that we call being in Christ. Now notice, he, he first talks about the differences, and then he talks about the similarities. He says, and, and go back to verse uh, 14, the last uh, phrase of verse 14, where it says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So there is something about Adam that reminds us of Christ. And the thing about Adam is that he was the head of his humanity. Christ is the head of his humanity. What Adam did made a difference in the lives of all of those who are in his humanity. What Christ did on the cross makes a difference in all of the humanity that's in Him. Now let's see how Paul kind of fleshes this out. He uses sort of an analogy here. So Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, now what are the differences? What are the dissimilarities between what Adam did and what Jesus did as the as the head of uh, Adam is the head of the original humanity and Christ as the head of the new humanity. He says in verse fifteen, but the free gift and the the free gift here is certainly the gift of uh, the, of what Christ did, bringing eternal life. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Okay, he says, Adam was a type of Christ, but what Adam did, what Adam did in his trespass is different from what Christ did. Now, how is it different? The free gift is not of what Christ did, is not like the trespass that Adam did. For if many died through the one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Now, notice uh, in, if, you're, if you're in a situation where you can look at your notes, you notice in that chart that I put there, uh, the, the, the two circles, the two humanities, either in Christ or in Adam, Adam was created in God's image, but Christ is the Creator Himself. Uh, he is God incarnate. 
uh, what Adam did, and notice first of all the nature of their actions. Adam was disobedient, and his one act of sin, his trespass, he he was uh, he was motivated by self will. He asserted himself. But notice the contrast is that Christ was obedient, and his one act of righteousness was a was an act of self sacrifice. Why, why did the, why did Christ do the things that He did? Why did Adam do the things that He did? And here you see the the motivation. One was on the basis of self will. The other is on the basis of self sacrifice. Now, what are the results of what they did? And uh, as we read through this, it says in verse sixteen, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, that is Adam's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, that's a lot to absorb. I do better if I'm able to sort of break things down and put them in some sort of chart form where I can look at things. And that's So that's what I've tried to do for you. Notice the result of what Adam did. What Adam did had a profound negative effect on everybody in his humanity. And who is that? That's everybody that's born into this world. He was disobedient. His act, well, he was motivated by self-will. He asserted himself. And what were the results of his action that we just read? Uh, It brought about condemnation. It brought about judgment, the wrath of God. It brought about death, physical and spiritual death. And in fact, there was this whole reign of death. Uh, there's a bondage to sin. There's a bondage to death. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Since therefore the children uh, share in flesh and blood, He Himself, the Son, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy or bring to nothing the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What Adam did not only brought condemnation to himself, uh, judgment to himself, physical and spiritual death to himself, but it also brought a, a bondage of, uh, of death, a fear of death. One day that's going to happen and the, the, the things that causes us to fear death is because we know we're going to have to face this judge one day. The, the, the judge of all the universe, uh, our Creator. That's the result of the one man's trespass. The result, and all of that's been imputed to us. And again, you say, that just doesn't seem fair. I didn't do all that stuff. But it's imputed to us. Now, why is that Why is that important? Because the way we were lost through the one sin of Adam is the same way that we are saved through the one obedient act of Christ Jesus on the cross. Notice, he was obedient. Now, Christ's uh, his obedience uh, generally is is put into two forms. There is a uh, there's a uh, an active obedience, which was his uh, perfect obedience to the law. Jesus uh, Jesus never broke broke the law. He was perfect in every way. And then the other is his passive obedience, and that is when he went to the cross. And he was—he uh, had no sin. Even Pilate, uh, his judge, his earthly judge, agreed that he had no sin, and yet he passively goes to the cross because he's—he's he's doing something uh, for the, for his people, for his those in his humanity, and uh, it's an act of righteousness, it's an act of self-sacrifice, and the result of that, from what we just read in this passage. Uh, 
from uh, from Romans chapter five is that it resulted in justification. That is. What Christ did on the cross, our, our trusting in Him, our trusting in the finished work of Christ, brought about the fact that God declares us to be righteous. He has imputed Christ's own righteousness, His perfection to us. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The free gift is, uh, is, is righteousness and eternal life. That's, that's the, not death, but life. And believers reign in life. We're, we're free from the dominion of sin and death. We don't have to be afraid that when we take our last breath and we know that we're going to stand before God or kneel before God because all of our sins have already been dealt with at the cross and God is not going to require double payment. And grace reigns in our lives. That's the, that's the argument that he's making here. Those are the real differences. It's a, that's the contrast between the action uh, of what Adam did in his disobedience and what it meant for all of those uh, who are in in his uh, in his uh, humanity, whereas the obedience of Christ has all of these marvelous benefits for all of those who are in his humanity. Now Paul goes on to say in Romans eighteen through twenty one, he talks about the similarity. He says that there's, really there's only one similarity. What what they did. Uh, brought about great dissimilarities uh, because one was uh, was motivated on the basis of self-will and uh, personal assertion, whereas the other was, uh, was an act of obedience, not disobedience, but an act of obedience. And uh, it was an act of righteousness. It was an act of self-sacrifice. But now there is a similarity between Adam and Christ. And remember, in the, at the end of verse, what was it, verse 14, it says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. That is, a type of Christ. And the, the, the similarity is this, that one single act of each man affected the destiny of literally millions of people. One act of disobedience made all of us sinners. One act of obedience on the part of Christ will make many to be righteous. And in fact, that's what Paul is leading into because in, in chapters 6 through 8 of Romans, uh, of, of his letter to the Romans, he begins to talk about sanctification, how God, having declared us to be righteous, now uh, pursues that and begins to make us uh, righteous. Let's, uh, let's read verses 18 through 21 of Romans 5. He says, Therefore, now you've got all these dissimilarities. One, one, one act on the part of Adam, one act on the part of Christ, brought all of these results, very dissimilar results. But the similarity is that it was a single act on the part of each one that produced this. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, what Christ did, leads to justification and life for all men. Now, who, now who are the all here? Does this mean that everybody, everywhere, this is universal? No, it means... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that is, all who are in the the uh, the humanity of Adam, that would that would certainly be everybody everywhere. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, that is, all who are in the humanity of Christ, all who are trusting in Him. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, who, who is the all? Well, uh, let me read you something from uh, John W. Stott's book, Men Made New, uh, published back in 1966. <clears throat> and Stott wrote this, So then, whether 
we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or dead, depends on which humanity we belong to. Whether we belong to the old humanity initiated by Adam or to the new humanity initiated by Christ. We need to get this quite clear. All men are in Adam, since we are in Adam by birth. But not all men are in Christ, since we can be in Christ only by faith. In Adam, by birth we are condemned and die. But if we are in Christ by faith, we are justified and live See, and the point he's making is this. At the time of my birth, in the time of your birth, although you and I had done no evil when we were born, we couldn't have done any evil. At the time of our birth, even though we had done no evil deeds of any kind, because of our solidarity with Adam, God declared and counted us as sinners. He imputed that sin of Adam to us. He he counted it to us. At the time of my new birth, and yours if you are a believer, at the time of our new birth, although you and I had done nothing to deserve God's grace, but through faith in Christ, God counted us as righteous. Think of it this way. Let me give you a sort of a, a modern day, I, I guess it's fairly, well it is a modern day example. And that is, think of a, think of a computer screen, uh, a heavenly computer screen. And it's a split screen on, uh, on one side, on the, on the left side of the screen, uh, that you just scroll up and down and it's just got everybody's name this, that has lived and is going to live and is living right now. And under every name it's got every sin that they've ever, that they've ever committed or ever will commit. And so let's just say we, we look for the bees and we go in there and we find Bradshaw and then we find Chuck or Charles H. And here, oh my goodness, here are all those sins that are just listed under there. That's on the left side of the screen. Now on the right side of the screen, there's only one name and that's the name uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And under his, there's, there's no sin that's listed there because he didn't sin. He was always perfect, and all his perfections are just listed right there. Now, at the time when, when we come to faith in Christ, what we discover is that God has taken all of my sin, past sin, present sin, future sin, future as far as I'm concerned, has taken all of that sin, and what he did was he hit, and I'm just using a, an illustration here. What he did was he hit the copy function. And he copied all of that stuff, all of that sin. And then he hit the delete button and all of it vanished from under my name. And then he went over to the right side of the screen and up under Jesus' name, he hit the copy. He, I'm sorry. He hit the paste button and pasted all of my sin there. He took all, he highlighted all of the perfection of the Lord Jesus and hit copy. And then he came over to where my name is on the left hand side of the screen and it's blank. And he hit paste. And all of that perfection was added, charged to my account. All of my sin was charged to him. All of his perfection is charged to me. All of my sin has been deleted from my account. All of his perfection has been added to my account. Verse 20 of Romans 5 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what's the very next thing that Paul says? In fact, it's a question that he asks, and it's the first verse of chapter 6. He says, what shall we then say? Shall we continue to live in sin that grace may abound? Notice, he changes from justification to sanctification. You cannot separate the two. Whom God justifies, He also ultimately will sanctify. The, the commonality between Adam and Christ is that both Adam and Christ did one act that has profound consequences for everyone who is associated with them. In Adam, that means every person who's ever born into the world. For Christ, that means every person who is born again into His kingdom. There's a, uh, there's a great passage uh, in the late James Packer's book, uh, God's Words, that I want to uh, want to read to you. It's uh, it's two paragraphs long. Let's see what's that time. Yeah, we're okay on our time, <clears throat> but I think it's really worth quoting. Uh, this is from a book entitled God's Words by InterVarsity Press, uh, 1981. Uh, James Packer. It says, the gospel shows how a just God can justly justify believing sinners. How is this possible? Through the full discharge of the claims which God's law makes upon them. In other words, on the grounds of real and actual righteousness, for compliance with the claims of God's law is the first and basic thing that righteousness means. The only way in which justification can be just is for the law to be satisfied so far as the justified are concerned. But the law makes a double demand on sinners. It requires their full obedience to its precepts as God's creatures and their full endurance of its penalty as transgressors. How How could they conceivably meet this double standard, this double demand? The answer is that it has been met already by the Lord Jesus Christ acting in their name. The eternal Son of God was born under the law in order that He might yield double submission to the law in His people's stead. Both aspects of His submission are indicated in Paul's words. He became obedient unto death. His life of righteousness culminated in His dying the death of the unrighteous according to the will of God. He bore the penal curse of the law in man's place to make propitiation for man's sins. Now, say, man, that's a lot to digest. Well, he's not through yet, but I think this is, the, this is a summary of what he's saying here. He says, and, he, and he's referring to Romans chapter 5. He says, and thus, through one act of righteousness, the life and death of the sinless Christ, the free gift came unto all men to justification of life. In virtue of Christ's righteousness, wrought out him as man's God-appointed representative, the righteousness of God, that is, righteousness from God, is bestowed on believers as a free gift. That is to say, they receive from God the right to be treated and the promise that they shall be treated no longer as sinners but as righteous. This is the thought expressed by the traditional phrase, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Namely, that believers are righteous and have righteousness in God's sight, not because they are righteous in themselves, but because Christ their head was righteous before God, and they are one with Him, sharers of His status and acceptance. Boy, that is... If, if we can come to grips with that and begin to understand that, it will make all the difference in the world in the, in the way that we live. Remember the old story, that uh, one of the stories that Jesus told of the king who gave the, uh, 
uh, the wedding uh, party for his uh, for his son. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things that wealthy people did in that day was when they invited folks to a party, they also and uh, to a wedding in particular, was they would provide the uh, the clothing for the people to wear. And in this case, it was going to be white clothing. White's always a picture of righteousness. And so uh, the invitations went out, and but there was uh, and all the folks showed up. But there was one guy who showed up, and uh, he decided he'd just come in his um, in his own clothes. He didn't he didn't wear that robe that was uh, provided by the king. And the king came up to him and said, "How is it that you got in here without that robe?" And the Bible says the man's response was. He was speechless. He had nothing to say. The Bible says uh, that every mouth will be stopped. We, we have no excuses to offer God. And then the uh, king said, cast him out into the outer darkness. And he was cast out. We cannot come to God our own way. First of all, we, we, have, to be, we have to be brought to Him. And that's the work of the Spirit of God. But when God brings us to Christ, God brings us to Christ and clothes us with His righteousness. And that's accomplished through justification. It's accomplished through imputation. That is, when we put our, when we look at the cross and we look at the dying figure of Jesus and we see that He's the perfect one. He kept the law perfectly. He never did anything wrong. And here he is hanging on the cross, and clearly he's not dying for any sin he ever committed. He didn't commit any. But he is dying for my sins. He's dying for sinners. And what God has done is that just as God has imputed the sin of what Adam did in the garden to me and to all of us who were born into this world, so also when I look at Christ and God grants me repentance and faith and I'm putting my faith in Christ and His finished work, I'm born into that new humanity and all of the perfections of Christ. Just as all of the terrible things that Adam did have been imputed to my life, now, all of the blessedness, all of the benefits that Christ has wrought is now, because I am in this new humanity, have been accounted to my life. They have been charged to my life. When God when the when the when the divine banker looks at my bank account, he doesn't see it as all negative. He sees it as all positive. Because all of the perfection of Christ has been imputed to my account. And all of the sin of mine, past, present, and future, has, was imputed to the Lord Jesus. And He has died for that. He faced the wrath of God. There are seven sayings that Jesus made from the cross. And the first and the last, He addresses God as Father. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, into Your hands I commend my spirit. And He died. But those five in between, those five sayings in between had to do with what Christ was doing on our behalf where He was experiencing the very wrath and the judgment of God. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? He was saying that for my benefit because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each of us to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. All of us who are trusting in Him. So to summarize, if I, I, to quickly summarize the doctrine of imputation, I guess we could summarize it this way, that uh, 
imputation is the attributing or the charging of something to someone. It's the setting of something to someone's account. Uh, synonyms include the word credit or count or reckon, consider, to account. And when, when God is said to impute sin or iniquity to someone, it doesn't mean that God makes someone bad or evil. What it does mean is that God accounts someone to be a sinner and thus guilty of sin and liable to punishment. The, when God does not impute sin or iniquity, it means that God does not charge someone with sin as a ground for punishment. The only way He can do that is if that sin has been imputed to another. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus. When God is said to impute righteousness to someone, it doesn't mean that God makes somebody good. What it does mean is that God accounts someone to be righteous and He declares them righteous and thus entitled to all the benefits of a righteous person. Uh, In neither case... Does the accounting by God change the character of the person? Imputation simply refers to a person's standing. Is this person liable to punishment or is this person entitled to benefits before God? And we saw the three major uses of of imputation in Scripture. That is, in original sin, the imputation of Adam's sin to all of his posterity, the death of all human beings is not the result of personal sins, although we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not the result of having inherited Adam's fallen, corrupt nature, although we all have inherited from birth his fallen, corrupt nature. But the death of all human beings is the direct result that God has charged all of humanity with Adam's sin of disobedience so that we all share in his guilt and the judicial obligation to suffer punishment. And Paul's whole purpose in discussing this doctrine is to show that the way believers in Christ are delivered from sin and death is the same way they were brought into condemnation Just as all humans are condemned because God has charged them with Adam's sin, believers are justified because God has credited to them the righteousness of Christ. So we see original sin imputed. We see the atonement and justification imputed because on the cross, Christ Jesus bore all the punishment due to believers their sin and their guilt having been, in, having been charged or imputed to Him by God the Father. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul's purpose is to show that the believer show the believer that his or her sin is reckoned to Christ. He is our innocent substitute, and it's reckoned to Christ the same way Christ's righteousness is reckoned to the true believer. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to God's people, to the believers, uh, when when Paul writes about the righteousness of Christ, he's referring to the legal status that Christ acquired by satisfying all the demands of God's law. That's His active obedience, culminating in His willing substitutionary sacrifice. That's His passive obedience for the sins of God's people. The believing sinner is forgiven and accepted as a righteous person, not on his own merits, which are certainly non-existent, but based on the merits of Christ's obedience, which are imputed to him or to her as the ground for their justification. Thus, the believer has a new legal standing given to him or to her by God. And in verse 3, Paul wrote, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends 
on faith. Thank God for imputation. Thank God that just as he credited, uh, he has credited the uh, all of the, the the sin of Adam and the results of that action to every human being in the same way. He has credited to all who trust in Christ all of the benefits that Christ has wrought and has clothed us in the perfection of Christ. And just as if we were at that wedding feast that that king gave that Jesus talked about, we are clothed in robes of righteousness. Not robes that we went out and bought ourselves. Not robes that we made ourselves. Not robes that we provided for ourselves but robes that He Himself has provided and has given us. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy. In our next study, we'll get back specifically into the book of Galatians and we'll talk about justification and the law. How does the law play a part in justification? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Thank You for the truth of imputation. Thank You that You have done for us what we never could do for ourselves. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.